You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hey, Free City, my name's Ethan, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad that you're joining us. Um, What a joy it was last Sunday to gather together in the parking lot of First Southern. I mean, they are so kind, so gracious. Um, to allow us to use their space. We had incredible weather. And, uh, you know, all week I, people were kind of asking what the, the gathering might be like, how many people we expected. And, and really, I had no idea. We have a lot of friends who are in ministry. And as we've talked with them, they're like, man, we're seeing like probably half of our congregation. Uh, there were way more than half of you there. And so that was super cool, super encouraging. It was fun to see you and wave at you, although I still long to hug so many of your necks. Um, what I think so much about Sunday mornings is running through Central and kind of the frenzy of people getting there and the excitement and all, and just being able to bear hug people. Um, I totally miss that, but I'm so thankful to see your faces. And we look forward to gathering together again. We're, we're looking at probably next week being back there in the parking lot. But today we are scattered once again. And so I I know this time hasn't been ideal, but I I do hope it has been helpful and and it has been space for you. And I I hope you've made it space to lean in and and step into community. So whether you're in Lawrence, whether you're in kind of Eudora or Topeka or wherever you find yourself, maybe you're on vacation and you're enjoying like the beauty of the Colorado Rockies or something like that, wherever you are, thanks for joining us. Um, But I I do hope that this is a good time for you to gather with the body. As uh, we started back last week, we've recently finished um, series in Ephesians and we're back into our series that's really run um, for the last few years as as kind of an in-between series and a one that we take breaks in, in the summer in the book of Psalms. And, and so the book of Psalms, it really just means songs. And so you may have heard it called the Psalter, but really what it is, it's a book of prayers or poems and songs that are meant to be instructive about God, about man, and about life. The church has used Psalms for centuries um, as help to find the, the cry in their hearts in the worst times and in the best times. And and the Psalms are really designed to appeal to the intellect in a way that would engage the heart. So in songs, if you think about the music you listen to, you have kind of words in music. And this is maybe, I hope, a helpful picture. Music, so the instrumentation, if you will, gives a a greater sense of a feel. It's kind of the emotion and, and movement of a song, it gives a breadth and a width, and then words come into play, and words give a greater sense of, of direction. They put us on a path, they give us understanding to the music. And that's why we have adopted the Psalms as kind of an in-between, a summer thing. We want God to make us into a people who under the direction of the Holy Spirit, find kind of a, a resolution between our thoughts and our emotions, our, our thinking, our feeling, our head, and our heart. We talk about this all the time. And really that, that we'd be people who, who have sound thinking and, and that, that that sound thinking would kindle within us a, a deep feeling and the deep feeling would motivate that sound thinking. They would work together. So maybe you are a person who 
is emotional. Maybe you would categorize yourself or other people would categorize you as that. Maybe you feel too much or, or perhaps like feelings aren't really your thing. However you would categorize yourself, this book gets for you. And so if we can, empowered by the Spirit of God, if we can begin to connect the head and the heart, I really think we'll become more whole people. We'll move from intellectualism or, or just merely emotionalism and, and we'll begin to kind of come in the middle as we delight in God's Word. And this is really the, the way and the, and the aim that we have every week at Free City. Like we have a liturgy when we gather together on Sundays. And this is not just like a, a regiment that we think you have to do because it's checking boxes. We, we really want you to know and experience God as he is. And, and we put that together asking the spirit of God to connect our head and hearts. That we would become people who know who God is and what he's done. But, but more than that people who actually live as though God is real and that his promises are true for us. And so today we find ourselves in Psalm 42 and 43. You read both of them in your gathering, but I'm really just going to stay in pretty much Psalm 42, but, but we are keeping the two together because they seem to kind of belong that way. If you look at verse 5 and verse 11 of chapter 42, you'll see a refrain of sorts that's repeated in verse 5 of chapter 43. And also, as we get into 42, if you have your Bible and you're looking at it, at it you'll see right above there, there's a, a heading that just says book 2. And so in Psalm 42, Casey mentioned this as we're closing out book 1 of Psalms of the Psalter. In, with chapter 41, we're now transitioning into the second book of the Psalms. And, and the Psalter's actually divided into five parts or books that really kind of seem to reflect the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so what we'll see as we step into this collection is that lament and distress really dominate this set of prayers that seem to kind of coincide with Exodus. So Psalm 42 and 43 takes on the voice of a people in exile. And this is not a pop culture exile. This is not Taylor Swift, you know, red lipstick, high heels. You didn't give me a warning sign. I don't know what's going on. Now I'm in distress. This is no fabricated version of exile. This is real. The psalmist is not angling to experience some fabricated heartbreak to, to sell records. This is true, truly within them. And so Psalm 42 and 43, it's in the Bible to help us. If you look at the heading of Psalm 42, there's an inscription and it says this, to the choir master, a maskal, the sons of Korah. Now we won't go into like huge detail talking about everything that this means, but, but here's essentially what I kind of want you to know. A maskal is a transliterated word that, that essentially means just a teaching or instruction. So as we begin Psalm 42 and 43, they are here in part to inform us. To inform us that dark, dry, and spiritually depressed days are ahead of us, that they will inevitably come. But Psalm 42 and 43 is also here to instruct us what to do when we face life in this way. So here's kind of the main idea today. 
If we are to endure the Christian life, we must learn to preach to our hearts. And as we look at today's text, we're just going to look at the psalmist. We're going to kind of listen to what they're saying. We're going to evaluate the text, and we're going to ask three questions as we walk through the text. The three questions are, what's going on? Why is this happening? What's the cause, if you will? And then what does the psalmist do? And, and we'll take that into our own application. What do we do? So what's going on? Why is this happening? What does the psalmist do? Let's get to it. What's going on? Look at verse 1 and 2 of Psalm 42. It says this, And as a deer pants for flowing streams, so, my, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And for me, it's, it's hard to read Psalm 1 and not be instantly thrown into standing in, in a half-filled Southern Baptist auditorium on a Sunday night during an altar call. You know what I'm talking? Like, as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after you. Growing up, I, I felt as though we all sang this song, but Gail Simpson, the pianist at my church, was the only one who felt this song as we sang. She played with great emotion, offering her gifts to the Lord. And, and that kind of sparks this visceral feedback for me that there really is a, a recollection of joy, like thankful for the tribe in which I came from and was raised in. But every time I read Psalm 42, I have to kind of slow down and read it like three times to take my mind out of this hymn and, and this melody and to get into a way of reading that's, that's more contemplative. And so if you have that same kind of looped experience, let's kind of try to lean in and read this for what it is, more than a familiar melody or song. So as we look at verse one, we're given a picture of a soul that thirsts. This soul is compared to a deer that pants for flowing streams of water. Now, like what's more natural than a deer drinking from a stream? That's what they do, right? If you think about it, you see like a painting of a deer and they're inevitably always near a stream. If you see three deer, you've got two of them looking back at the camera or around and one of them is bent down taking a sip from the water. It seems to always be the picture. But what's striking in this, this metaphor is that the deer is panting. That would make sense if we were like considering dogs or something like that. But I don't think I've ever seen a deer pant. I've also never like hung out with deer a bunch in that sense. The only time I've seen their tongue out is after they've been killed and someone's hunted them. But in my estimation, it's this. If a deer is panting, they're no longer near the stream. And so if we look at the comparison of verse one, we see a deer and then we see self and a similar picture of thirst. Look at verse two. It says, my soul thirsts for God. For the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? So if we were to kind of take that metaphor and connect the stream to God, we would see how the stream sustains and nourishes, how it revives and how it satisfies the deer. And isn't this exactly what God does? It seems that the psalmist 
knows this, like has obviously experienced this and through a simple confession, through saying, my soul thirsts for God, allows us a peek into the condition of their life. Monday night, I was uh, sleeping and I was woken by my son. It was, it was about 4 a.m. because I remember looking at my phone, but he was just crying out like just flat out weeping. So I hopped out of bed, which is crazy because normally my wife does that. She's the one who sleeps super low tolerance of, of noise, I guess. I'm the deep sleeper. But I jump out of bed and I run in there expecting to you know, catch him waking up mid-nightmare. But as I open the door, he's just sitting up in bed, holding his cup out. And, and through the tears, he's just saying, I'm thirsty. He grabbed the cup, the the one that we fill every single night. If we forget it, he makes us go get it. Every single night, he grabbed the cup that's always there expecting to find water. But as he attempted to quench his thirst, it was empty. Nothing there to satisfy him. And I think this is how the psalmist feels. We see him pouring out his heart, his desires. He says, I thirst for you. When will I be able to come and appear before you? He's praying. A thing that he's grown actually accustomed to. He's longing for the very presence of God, a relationship that he's experientially come to know. But now that relational closeness seems distant. He cries out, when can I come and appear before you? When can I behold your face? And nothing. And in the felt absence, a sense of dryness sets in. Now, I want to take note of, of just a couple things that we really, I think, should clarify early on in looking at this text. Two things. He's not saying, I don't believe in God. Now, there is a time when, when we might hear that. You might say that yourself. This psalmist is not saying that. If, if you examine the text, there's nothing to lead us to believe that this person is questioning the existence of God. Another thing that I think is worth noting is there's also nothing here that should lead us to believe that the writer is caught in some sin. In many of the Psalms, we see a a confession of sin where circumstances may seem similar to Psalm 42, but there's a distinct difference. And, And Psalm 32 is actually, I think, an example. Psalm 32, starting in verse three, it says this, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Like this could seem very similar to Psalm 42. Kind of this wasting away, worn and weary. We could make sense of this. Like thirsting could be similar to your hand heavy upon me. We could kind of tie that. We could actually kind of tie it up into verse 7 of 42, where he says, your breakers and your waves are crashing over me. But then verse 5 of, of chapter 32 says this, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. But as we look through Psalm 42, we never see a confession of sin. But what do we see? We've established here 
that the writer longs to see God. They have a deep thirst for God, longing to appear before him. But also look at the first half of verse 3. It says this, My tears have been my food day and night. So we see this longing that they state coupled with a loss of appetite. The the dude who used to feast on God, who led the procession to the house of God with zeal, now only consumes his tears day and night. And this is no doctor's orders. Like there is no such thing as a strictly saline diet. It's not healthy. He feels distant from God, longing and thirsting for the presence of God. And so we ask the first question, like what's going on here? And I think the answer to this is we see a a type of spiritual depression. So let's investigate the why. Why is this happening? What's the cause? And and we're going to break this kind of down into three categories under here that that there's kind of a a voice of from others and, and maybe couple that with a voice of self. That there's distance from God and his people and then just kind of the chaos of life. So look again at verse 3, but at the end of that. It says, I've got tears for food. But then he says this, I've only eaten my tears while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? So consider the, the where of the disapproving voice of others. Like everyone to varying extents longs for affirmation. And when we receive condemnation, It's quite shaking. This is the man who declared his faith in the gathering that we see in verse 4. You you can imagine that he stands up and, and perhaps says, Hey, come drink from the Lord. Come drink from the fount of endless satisfaction. He once declared this, but now he's thirsty. He thirsts and now in this vulnerable state, that has also left him vulnerable to the taunts of others. And their taunts run deep. Look at verse 10, chapter 42. It says, As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? A deadly wound in my bones. Think about that. Have you ever experienced this? Like the voice of others, friends or foes, speaking into life deadly blows. Words of condemnation that weigh so heavily on you, they actually manifest pain in your body. Speech that really just dismantles your soul. Where is your God, they mock. I have to believe that as others voice these disturbances, the psalmist to some extent began to hear a similar voice in himself. You see, we we have, you experience this. We have a voice of others and a voice of self, the external, the internal. But what so often happens is that the condemning voices that audibly present yourself at some point, they become an internal murmur reinforcing the external claims. When looking at Psalm 42, I I almost think that when when we see that they taught me, where is your God, that we could almost interchange that they. And and here's what I mean by that. Look at verse 3 again. 
says, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? I think that they there actually refers to his foes taunting him. But if we were to consider the internal and external dialogue, we could perhaps interpret they as the presence of his tears. While he has only tears for food, his meal signals to him what's lacking, mocking him. Where's your God? So condemnation can happen to you, an external or in you. And this can be a causal factor for depression. So we can see one of the causes could be the voice of others or the voice of self. But also there's another possible reason for his current state. Look at verse four. I would say distance from God, from the people of God. It says this in verse four. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. We've talked about part of the overall feel here is spiritual depression because God seems distanced. But, but think about how also this distance from fellow believers would be at play here. He recalls a time when he would be with others praising God. Also look at verse six. It says this, in my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Miser. We also see him mention a physical distance from the temple. He's not near Jerusalem anymore. Do you know that when we gather for worship, we, we don't just gather in like a, a beautiful auditorium or a living room or parking lot or back porch or elsewhere. It's not just a customary observance, but it's truly spiritual work. Like when the people of God come together, we recently finished the series in, in Ephesians and in Paul's letter, we gained two huge truths and realities of the Christian life. And one is that because of Christ, you have peace with God and that then two, that because of Christ, you now have a family. And this family is in place to stir your affections for Jesus, to bear your burdens, and to walk with you as you walk with Christ. The Christian life is one that's intended to live together. Now, I know some may hear this and you may think, no, 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 I'm pretty introverted. I, I'm pretty good without others. But the thing is that your, your longings for the physical presence of others might be less than that of your more outgoing brothers and sisters, but you still need people. You were made to live in community, communion with God and with others. This is why we so strongly push city groups here at Free City. Like we really, really, really believe that the Bible calls us to be a people of dependence. And without individuals in your life to push you to Jesus, it's so easy to naturally bend into kind of a, a self-dependence. Self-dependence that is either inflated or puffed up, or self-dependence that has already inflated and hit its breaking point, leaving you in a heap of ruin, inward, depressed, downtrodden. 
And as this psalmist is left alone, a sense of a lost relationship with God and a loss of nearness with the people of God has left him downcast. This seems to be in part because of the voice of others or potentially the voice of self, the distance from God and fellowship with others, but but also possibly because of the chaos of life. Let's look at verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. And here we're, we're given this really like a violent picture of water. If you think about waves kind of crashing over, coming over the crest of, of a waterfall and just smashing into the body of water below, it, it's pretty chaotic. Trimper Longman in his commentary on the Psalms explains the picture here as a, a portrayal of the chaos of life. There are so many times when in ministry where I sit with individuals and, and we sit and I'm, I'm just asking them questions about their life and, and they can legitimately go from story to story to story recalling difficult circumstances. And what's so often like a, a thread of similarity from person to person is, is that one event that they explain or one season explained seems difficult enough to erode one's hope. But so often there are like many times where experience is mounted upon experience, leaving one exhausted, downcast, spiritually depressed. Have you experienced this? A feeling that it's almost as though you've, you've kind of found yourself in, in an ocean, waves crashing over you. And as you come up for air, another one sweeps you over and then the undertow grabs you and sucks you further down and, and further out. You found yourself in this predicament, like overwhelmed with the chaos of life. If so, what do you do when the, the breakers and the waves come crashing over you? I think the psalmist gives us a bit of a guide of, of what we should do, how we are to endure the Christian life when spiritual depression comes our way. So we've seen that, that there seems to be a, some spiritual depression here. We've seen that, and we've kind of asked like, why is this happening? Examining kind of the causes that there's a voice of others and, and a voice of self, that there's distance from God and, and God's people. And there's kind of a chaos within life. Finally, in closing, we, we ask, what does the psalmist do? And, and, and in turn, what are we to do? Look at verse five. It's the same as, we're just going to look at verse five because it fits in order, but it's the same as verse 11 and verse five of 43. It says this, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my God and my salvation. Now here we're given a really, really important example of the necessity of dialogue between the person and the soul or the heart. We're too often fooled into believing that, that during like crazy chaotic seasons, that we may just kind of come to a standstill or, or that our lives or our, our, our entire being are kind of called to a halt. 
The problem with this view is that we overlook the fact that our souls have a constant monologue. And our aim really needs to be to turn that monologue into a dialogue. My natural disposition is really to ignore. Like I say this to friends all the time. It's not that I don't feel things, for I feel deeply. It's just that I usually don't take the time to engage with the things that I feel. At times, this is perhaps because I'm afraid of what I feel, but most often it's because I really think I, I don't have time and, and I'd rather just remain ignorant. The problem with this is that I overlook the fact that my soul is constantly talking, constantly nagging at me. I've just over time learned to ignore it. It takes a real pause and, and consideration for me to begin to understand the voice of my heart and then to even speak back to it. But this is the gift that we're given in Psalm 42. We get to observe the writer. What's he doing? He pours out his heart, everything that he is before God. He remembers God's faithfulness and he enters then from there, from its place of reality. He enters into a dialogue with his heart. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a book called Spiritual Depression and it's really just a collection of sermons built on the premise of Psalm 42, 5 and, and 11. And in it, he states this, the essence of this matter is to understand that this self of ours, this other man within us has got to be handled. Do not listen to him, turn on him, speak to him, condemn him, abrade him, exhort him, encourage him, remind him of what you know, instead of listening placidly to him and allowing him to drag you down and depress you for that is what he will always do if you allow him to be in control. This is absolutely critical work in the life of the Christian. We must learn to preach to our hearts. For our hearts, we talk about this often, like St. Augustine, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That is so true. They, they roam from thing to thing or person to person or whatever to whatever. They talk, talk, talk at us, and we must learn to speak back. The psalmist, notice how he talks. He, he doesn't say, hey, cheer up, buddy. Things will get tough, but they'll also get easier. He's not fooled. He's, he's not distracted with like a, a momentary satisfaction. He inquires of himself, evaluates what's going on, and to the best of his ability, slows down to give his voice to that which he feels. But he doesn't get stuck in what he feels. He does feel stuck in his soul, but he's not stuck. He preaches a sure and steady word to his heart. Look again at verse 5. He inquires, why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He gets up, he stands up on top of stuff and he says, Saul, why are you depressed? Why are you so disturbed? Hope in God. Look to God. Remember God. He's never failed you and he never will. He says that. 
Salvation, it's in God's hands. Look up, look to God, hope in God. How is the psalmist able to say this? Like he's downtrodden, downcast in the midst of his trials, in the midst of the oppression of enemy attacks. Why is he able to preach to his heart? Look at verse 8 as we close. It says this, by the day, Lord, by day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a song, a prayer to the God of my life. The steadfast love that he mentions is the Hebrew word for God's covenantal love. It's not a convenient love. It's a committed, everlasting love. This is the love that calls the people of God into worship in, in Psalm 118, where we see, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love, it endures forever. This is the love that, if you're a parent and you have the Jesus Storybook Bible, that Sally Lloyd-Jones considers the never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. Do you know this type of love? Have you experienced the covenantal love of God that never, ever leaves? That's with you day and night, mountaintop and deathly low, dark, dry valley. Consider temptation in the dark days of life. Like how easy is it to begin to think that somehow God has changed? That he's bailed or, or that his promises, they're not for you or they were never true. What do you do in, in the days of, of spiritual depression? Like, how do you handle yourself? Psalm 42, it gives us a clear example. That if we're going to endure, if we're going to face these days of spiritual depression and days that will come, we've got to learn to preach to our heart. You must remind yourself of God, who he is, what he's done, and what he promises to do. And this is actively hope. Hope is the companion to perseverance. The word of God is the means that God has given us to sustain us in the dark night of the soul. So when given to depression, we must come back to the word. We must come back to God's faithfulness. We must consider things like Romans 15, 4, that says, for whatever was written in former days, it was written for our instruction. And this is Psalm 42 included, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. For us, our hope is that we cry out to a God who hears us. And when we cry out to God, we're crying out to the one who rewards those who seek him, as Hebrews 11.6 says. And when we preach to our hearts, hey, hope in God, soul, hope in God, heart, we're calling our souls to hope in the one who blesses those who persevere, as James 1.12 says. It says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test of time, what happens? He'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And God is faithful to all his promises. In 2 Corinthians 1, 
20 through 22, it's speaking of Jesus and it says this, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Our hope has come through Jesus and he is the fulfillment of all God's promises. So let's fix our eyes on him as we preach the good news of this kingdom to our hearts. May we be that type of people. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we do ask that you would help us. Lord, for those who are listening and who are in a season where they identify with the psalmist, Maybe they're downtrodden, downcast. Lord, if if there is sin, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would grant conviction of heart and lead them to repentance. But if they're just depressed with the woes of life, the breakers and waves crashing over them, the voice of others, the voice of self, or even the distance of this season, Holy Spirit, would you give them voice to speak to their heart? Would you give them a, an ability to engage with what they feel, give word to it, and speak back to it? To say, hope in God, fix your eyes on Jesus, for these trials are here, but they're momentary afflictions, and Jesus has secured an eternity apart from this. So endure, soul, endure hope in God. Fix your eyes on him, for he alone is your salvation. Amen. Church family, it was so good to be with you last week. We look forward to being with you next week.